Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's week four and a half, week five of college football, week four in the NFL, and we've got all the props, odds, promos, and parlays ready for you at BetOnline Sportsbook. Use our promo code Believe. that's B-L-E-A-V, with the link in the description to this episode, and you can get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night, however and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. And podcasts aren't live. That's the whole purpose of these podcast things. You can listen however and whenever it is that you so choose, and we appreciate that you have decided to stop in however and whenever it is that you may be choosing Welcome, 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 everybody. It's NFL Monday once again. Coming off of a fun week three and a half, week four in college, week three in the NFL. It was a wonderful, wonderful week. I'm very, very excited to chat with you all here today. We've got a fun show coming at you today, and there's so much that we can dive into. We Could we dive into how infuriating it must be to be a Baltimore Ravens fan for the fact that they lost that game despite like every possible opportunity to put away a team that clearly was not as good as they are? And the fact that for the third year in a row, it's week three and a half, and the Baltimore Ravens have seven players who are normally starters who are out for the game before the game even starts, and that doesn't even count the injuries that happen during the game for the Ravens. Must be absolutely infuriating to be a Baltimore Ravens fan. We could talk about that today. We could talk about the Arizona Cardinals having 200 rushing yards against the Dallas Cowboys. 200 rushing yards to beat a Cowboys team that underperformed all across the board against Arizona, outgained them an offense, but still underperformed across the board. We could talk about that today. There's so much that we can break down here on the show. And, of course, there's a lot of college football that we can break down. Oh, we're also going to have our Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award. Spoiler alert, it's probably going to go to that chaotic game between the Chargers and Vikings that just left everyone feeling gross about themselves. I think Chargers-Vikings is now the new Falcons-Lions. For years, we used to joke with Blake Jude and Razor Rosenthal and everyone 
Don't ever bet on the Falcons. Don't ever bet on the Lions. The, uh, three or four years ago, they played that chaotic game that was Todd Gurley accidentally scoring a touchdown and fumbles and Hail Marys and just altogether like the most chaotic football game any of us have ever seen. I think Chargers-Vikings is the new Falcons-Lions because now the Falcons have decided we're just going to go... 500 while being the most boring football team in the NFL. We're going to play like these 17 to 20 slop fests, or in today's case, it was what, 6 to 20? When they the offense doesn't get it going, it's 6 to 20, but when the offense does get it going, it's 20 to 17 slop fests. Now the Falcons are boring to watch instead of Instead of being mediocre and fun to watch, the Falcons are now mediocre and boring to watch. The Detroit Lions are probably going to host a playoff game this year and might have a good shot at winning it because it doesn't look like there's that many dominating teams in the NFC. So now that the Falcons and Lions are no longer the Falcons and Lions of old, I think Chargers and Vikings takes that mantle from them. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Texans, Jaguars. We'll talk about the college football slate from the weekend. All of that's coming up on a jam-packed 45-minute podcast here today. We got to begin, though, with the story of week one, and that is the Miami Dolphins dropping a 70-piece on the Denver Broncos. Hit that T-Pain music real quick for the Miami Dolphins. Celebrate the 70-point beatdown for a team that has not won a playoff game since this song came out back in 2007. So yeah, the Miami Dolphins are the second best team in the AFC. How about that? Miami last year, right out the gate, was a team that jumped out and kind of caught people off guard. I remember we were doing some shows with Cordell Stewart last year. um, With Believe, it was his personal podcast. He was a guest on this show a couple times. And I remember Cordell being all in on the Dolphins and thinking, yes, Miami is the team that is the favorite in the AFC East. And I remember looking at all of the the quote-unquote nerd statistics and uh, things like SRS ranking, which is if you took every team in the NFL, put them on a neutral field against a league average opponent— what would their record or what would their point spread be? What would, what would be the number of points they were favored against a league average? NFL team and I remember going through that ranking and I remember going through expected win-loss record and I remember going through the um, points for point against totals and some of the nerd stats and the Dolphins were one of those teams that felt like 
they were a bit of a mirage. The Buffalo Bills were better than them in every statistic. In fact, the Buffalo Bills were two whole games better in expected win-loss record than any other team in the NFL. The Buffalo Bills last year were the best team in the NFL on paper. And all last season we talked about, this year is Buffalo's best chance to beat Kansas City. In 2021, they had gone 13 seconds away from beating Kansas City before they lost at the end with the Mahomes. 13 seconds, tie the game, Kansas City wins the coin toss, they go win the game, one of the great for my money the greatest football game I've ever seen played. That Buffalo versus Kansas City game in 2021 Kansas City was favored, Kansas City was on their home field, and Buffalo was that close to beating them. And last year, Buffalo had a team, on paper, better than Kansas City. Buffalo's best chance to beat Kansas City was last season, had they stayed healthy, they didn't stay as healthy as they would have liked to have been, and then they collapsed in the playoffs against Cincinnati. And this year, Miami feels much better than Buffalo. I know Buffalo's going to play Miami next week. I know you're going to get a small sample size that will give you an answer. Hell, this week last year, we had Buffalo playing against Miami, and that was the game that was in the sun, and and it, it was the Dolphins winning at the end because Stephon Diggs got cramps, and Buffalo missed a throw on fourth down that would have been a touchdown, but because Josh Allen threw it short, they ended up falling incomplete. That was the game where Ken Dorsey throws everything down and shoves everything off the table, and then the hand kind of covers the camera. If you remember that video, that was week three of last year. That was NFL Monday week three, where we were here talking about the Dolphins beating the Buffalo Bills, the Dolphins starting the season three and the Dolphins having the most points per game in the NFL, Tua having one of the five best passer ratings in the NFL, and that didn't feel like the Dolphins were one of the best teams in the league. And all the nerd stats backed up that the Dolphins were not one of the best teams in the league. This year feels a little bit different because the Miami Dolphins have the number one offense in the NFL again. The Miami Dolphins have an expected win-loss record of 2.3 and 0.7. For reference, that means the Miami Dolphins would be one of the best teams in the NFL based on expected win-loss record, not just a fluky 3-0 team. Small sample size on SRS, so I don't like bringing this stat up until at least October, but in SRS, the Dolphins are expected to be 8th in the league at the end of the week. They were actually 14th going into the week, so nerd stats were telling you Dolphins, bit of a mirage through the first two weeks, but after three weeks, it's hard not to look at that team and say, this team is absolutely incredible. Incredible. They'd only had a plus nine point differential through the first two games of the season, and you could point to their defense being a problem. But the Miami Dolphins, I was prepared to come into today regardless of result from Miami and start to talk about how Miami Dolphins are the second best team in the AFC potentially behind Kansas City. And now after this week, I feel more convinced than ever that Kansas City and Miami are the two best teams in the AFC. Buffalo's right in that group. The Bengals are falling apart because of injuries combined with um, an 0-2 start where their defense didn't get enough stops to help a lackluster offense, both against, um, the I think it was Cleveland and Baltimore, didn't have enough to get by. And the Bengals falling, Buffalo not being as good as last year, has me looking up and saying, hey, the Dolphins are 
probably better than Buffalo right now. I mean, the, the Buffalo Bills through two weeks were higher in expected win-loss record and SRS ranking than the Dolphins. However, I would suspect that the Miami Dolphins are going to jump right up. And look, Buffalo beat the living crap out of the Washington racial slurs slash Washington commandos, whatever. We're, we're in the transition period now that uh, Dan Snyder's gone from calling them the commandos or the racial slurs. But look, Washington is in a position where they are... A 2-0 team that was fraudulent, Buffalo beat the crap out of them, and I think Buffalo has like a negative 30, or sorry, I think the Washington has a negative 30-point differential now, despite the fact that they're the same record as Buffalo at this point. Yeah, I'm looking at expected uh, SRS. Uh, they are 11th in the NFL, and that was before they lost by 34. Buffalo beat the crap out of Washington. Buffalo is a really good team, and yet I'm still here looking up and saying, is Miami better than Buffalo? For the first time in four years, I feel confident looking up at this and saying Miami might be better than Buffalo. And look, Buffalo won the last two games of the season against Miami after Miami won that week three game. All at, We did a whole post-game show following Dolphins and Bills, the second game in the regular season, the one that was on a Saturday night in Buffalo. And I remember doing the show after that and saying, Buffalo is one of the four best teams in the NFL Miami is one of the eight best teams in the NFL, and if you want to see the difference between top four and top eight, look at that Dolphins and Bills game right there. The Dolphins played excellent, Tua's stat line was excellent, and the Dolphins lost by 10 points. Or maybe it was seven at the end, but they were down double scores in the fourth quarter. That is the difference right there. Buffalo had too much talent across the board and better quarterback play, and so their offense was able to do what they wanted against a Miami defense that was the weakest unit on the field, and you saw why Miami was a top eight team and why Buffalo was a top three to four team in the NFL. This year, it feels like Miami and Buffalo are both two of the top three teams or four teams in the NFL at this point. I think it's pretty safe to say, looking up, like the four teams that we know are really, really good this year are Kansas City, Buffalo, Miami, and San Francisco. Those are the only four teams I'm like, yes, without a single shadow of a doubt, those are teams that can make the Super Bowl. I, I Kansas City... San Francisco, those are the two I'd point to. Dolphins, Buffalo, right in that same group. And this is the first time we've conceded that Miami is that good. Even when they were 3-0 last year. Even when they were putting up this kind of offensive explosion against Baltimore. Where they had three touchdowns in five minutes, came back to win the game against Baltimore. Even when that was going on last year, we still didn't go so far as to say the Miami Dolphins were one of the, the best teams in the NFL. They were clearly a, a level behind Buffalo all season long, and we saw the results bear itself out. This year, this year, I don't think this is more of a mirage. Without Jalen Waddell, and there are so many crazy stats about the Dolphins this year. Tua has the fastest release time in the NFL of 2.3 seconds from snap to throw which is really good for an offensive line that's regarded as like one of the weakest units on the team, and Teron Armstead's the only offensive lineman worth a damn at the top ends of the NFL. To have that, and to go from Miami Dolphins, get the ball out quickly so that Tua doesn't take hits, and... They have an offense which incorporates so much motion and gives Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell and Raheem Mostert and now um, Ockney. I, I, it's 
Akane, Akane, whatever the the name of the backup running back who's now in place of Jeff Wilson. They incorporate so much motion that it gives these speed backs enough time to where two is getting the ball out in 2.3 seconds, fastest in the NFL, and they have the the most yards per pass through the air in the NFL at 10 point, I think it was two coming into Sunday's game. Most yards traveled through the air on passes, and Tua has the fastest release time in the NFL because these receivers are just so goddamn fast and incorporating motion gives Tyreek Hill a head start. If you watch Kansas City, and Kansas City's a good model for, for Miami in this respect, if you watch Kansas City play against a JV defense like uh, the Chicago Bears this week, Kansas City was putting Travis Kelsey in motion from the outside into the slot and then letting Travis Kelsey run. There was one play where... Uh, Greg Olson broke this down on the broadcast where Kelsey was supposed to run a flag route, which is that he starts lined up as a out receiver, motions into the slot on the left side of the field, and then is going to run a route up and then run towards the sideline, essentially like a reverse post. And Kelsey gets in motion, starts running the opposite direction that his momentum is taking him from where he's supposed to go. Because the corner is sitting on the outside, Kelsey just sits down in the middle of the field. Mahomes throws it to him in the spot that Kelsey has improvised. And then they hit Kelsey for a 17-yard completion and he falls backwards and, and picks up a couple extra yards. Getting Kelsey in motion threw off the zone defense. And then Kelsey had enough wherewithal to recognize where the corner was, change the route... And then Mahomes was able to recognize that and hit him in stride. And motion offense set up most of that. Can't, uh, Andy Reid is the greatest offensive coach in the history of the NFL. And a lot of the reason is, one, he changed the way that people incorporate motion into their offense. And secondarily, him bringing spread offense concepts to the NFL with Donovan McNabb and later with Patrick Mahomes. Bringing those spread offense concepts to the NFL was an innovation that now every team is running variations of spread offense that Andy Reid was incorporating from college football back in the early two th- early and mid 2000s. And so looking at Miami because they're giving Tyreek Hill a head start in motion where he's lined up on the outside and he's motioning into the slot, Tyreek Hill already has a running start out the gate so that Tua can drop back 1 2 3, throw the ball up Tariq Hill's running a slant route or a drag route over the middle, and he's catching the ball at 10-yard or 20-yard intervals and cutting up field with a running head start. And that fir- the, the one touchdown that Tariq Hill had today was just so good that Tariq Hill beat a safety that was trying to catch him, and the safety took a correct angle. The safety had the angle on Tariq Hill. He just mistimed how fast Tariq Hill was and found himself like grabbing Hill with one arm while Hill went past him for the last couple yards of the touchdown and then jumping into the crowd to celebrate with the the fans. And so incorporating that into the offense means Tua can get the ball out faster and it doesn't inhibit what the Dolphins are doing because of how much motion they incorporate into what they run. The second aspect of why the Miami Dolphins might be better than last year is their running game is incredible. It went from last year at the start of the season saying a team with Miles Gaskin, Chase Edmonds, and Salvin Ahmed is not going to be one of the best rushing units in the NFL. 
They complete, and I was right. I was 100% right. A rushing unit of Miles Gaskin, Salvin Ahmed, and Chase Edmonds could not be the best running back room in the NFL, especially with a subpar offensive line. And what the Dolphins did was they got rid of all three of those, well, I guess two of those, Ahmed's still there, but got rid of all three of those running backs, brought in three completely brand new running backs, and had a halfway decent running game the back half of the season. And this year they bring back Raheem Mostert, Jeff Wilson Jr., two guys who used to play with Mike McDaniel on the 49ers when he was offensive coordinator, and then they added this new running back whose name I keep butchering, but I'm going to make sure that I get it right this time, um, Akane, 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 I keep calling him Akne, but it's Devin Akane, Devin Akane, who is a rookie draft pick that they brought in, plus Ahmed is still there, plus obviously you have um, Raheem Mostert as their number one running back. Jeff Wilson Jr. goes on IR, slide in Akane, and Mostert and Akane have been two of the best running backs in all of the NFL. Raheem Mostert has 300 rushing yards and seven touchdowns in three games. And he wasn't even the best running back today because a Kane had over 200 rushing yards, 50 plus receiving yards, four total touchdowns, four touchdowns for a Kane, four touchdowns for Mostert. The running back room for the Dolphins has so far this season, 11 touchdowns. The receiving room for the Dolphins has five touchdowns, four of them by Tariq Hill. Sorry, they have six because Chosen Anderson had a touchdown. Six touchdowns for the offense receiving, four by Tariq Hill, 11 touchdowns by the running backs. They had 376 rush yards in this game. Again, The starting running back had four touchdowns. The backup running back had four touchdowns. And I know this singular game is an anomaly, and I know it's not too much to overreact to it, but without Jalen Waddell, this offense has still been incredible. There's so much speed on this Dolphin offense that it feels like they are one of the four best units in the NFL, and their defense has been respectable enough. It has not been great so far this season, but their defense has been respectable enough that they just... and. The Buffalo Bills are not as good as last year. The Miami Dolphins, I'm sorry, the Cincinnati Bengals are not as good as last year. It feels like everyone else is coming back to the pack, and the Dolphins have improved over the past few years. Or sorry, over the past few months. They've changed what they're doing on offense, and I think it's really interesting to watch all of it come together in real time. And I know they play Buffalo next week, and I know it's going to be fun to watch that football game and see it as like a... I don't want to say like a litmus test, but like watching this game and seeing what's going to happen between the Dolphins and Bills head to head with two teams that I think are relatively equal in skill to each other. And the Buffalo Bills are two and a half point favorites at home, which means Vegas is saying that they're roughly equal in skill set to each other. I'm going to be so interested to see how those two teams play each other, because at this point, those are the two and three best teams 
in the AFC. And since only the 49ers are the team that I think is elite in the NFC so far, or at least as the numbers would bear out is an elite team in the NFC, I think you're talking about two of the four best teams in all of the NFL right now. Dolphins, Bills, both teams should be 3 and 0, but the advanced numbers would indicate this is a, behind Kansas City, these are the two and three best teams in all of the AFC. And they're going to play each other. And Miami has improved in such a way that I think they might be the second best team. And if they're not the second best team, it's no further than third. And they're still in that group of four to six teams that we know can and might win the Super Bowl. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. U C C E S S have a success. All right, let's talk about college football. College football was fun this weekend. It was, and it deserves our attention because this was one of the best weeks of college football we've had since last season. And I didn't do a wired up about college football. We uh, we wired up about some uh, some stories of the week with the the Minnesota Vikings. You can check that out on Wired Up. We had a uh, conversation about the. Uh, Joe Burrow-less, potentially, Cincinnati Bengals. I know that game hasn't happened at the time we're recording this, but you can get some good information on that from Wired Up. But we didn't do a football wire, a college football Wired Up. So let's talk about Notre Dame and Ohio State right now because that ending of the game was impeccable. Ohio State down 14-10 to 10 against Notre Dame. And this is what I would call essentially like a quarterfinal game of the college football playoff, or maybe call it like a a round of 16 game of the college football playoff, where Ohio State loses this game, they still have a ballpark chance of getting into the college football playoff. Notre Dame loses this game, they still have a ballpark chance of getting into the college football playoff. The team who wins this game has a lot more leeway going forward to get into the playoff, particularly if you're Notre Dame. Because Notre Dame doesn't play in a conference, and and this is the thing that happens every year with the college football playoff. Notre Dame gets into the playoff because they go 12-0 or 11-1 and only lose to a really, really good team, and then they get to the playoff and they're 17-point underdogs and they get smoked out the building. But Notre Dame plays only one other ranked opponent, well, I guess two other ranked opponents. They play Duke next week. And then they play Notre Dame. Or sorry, then they play USC. Blech. Notre Dame at home against USC. They play Duke. They play USC. Those are the only ranked matchups they have the rest of the season. If Notre Dame had beaten Ohio State, they would have been okay losing to USC and still potentially getting into the college football playoff, assuming USC only has one loss the entire season. By losing this game, Notre Dame's margin for error is now zero. With no conference championship, 
they and Ohio State being undefeated as we currently stand, Notre Dame is going to need to win out the rest of the season to make the college football playoff. And if they don't, they still might play in a very good bowl game. Going 10-2 and two with this team is very good. Notre Dame is still a very good football team. And the reason I thought this was so interesting is because Ohio State and Notre Dame are not championship-level good. Both of those things I feel very confident saying. Ohio State's not good enough to win the national championship. Notre Dame is not good enough to make the national championship. And I know saying out loud, what do you mean Ohio State isn't good enough to win the national championship sounds a bit strange. Ohio State hasn't made the playoff in three seasons. Ohio State was preseason number six. They were number six coming into this game. By virtue of barely beating Notre Dame on the last play of the game, a team, a Notre Dame team that we know is not good enough to win the championship, if they made the college football playoff, they would be the fourth team to get into the playoff just because we got to add a fourth who had a, an above-average season but won't stack up against the two teams who are going to play in the national championship. The reason I bring all this up is Ohio State and Notre Dame are very clearly on equal footing at this stage of the game. And if you'll remember last year, we did a Wired Up podcast. I remember I was sitting in this exact same spot at the exact same radio studio, a year younger, a year wiser, a year wetter behind the ears or whatever you want to call it in radio space. But I remember doing a podcast after that Notre Dame-Ohio State game where Notre Dame kept it close in the first half and then Ohio State pulled away at the end. It was the first or second game of the Marcus Freeman era at Notre Dame. And the thing that I remember talking about is when you promote the guy who was the well-liked interim after a coach gets fired or after a coach leaves, very often you are trying to preserve the continuity and preserve the vibes that have already existed within the within the the organization or within in the college football space within the team and when Notre Dame hired Marcus Freeman without doing an outside coaching search it felt to me like they were selling themselves short because Notre Dame is one of those 10 to 12 desirable head coaching positions that an NFL coordinator might leave in order to take that job and pays as well as a low-end NFL head coach And so I thought they were selling themselves short a little bit by trying to hire Marcus Freeman for the reasons they were talking about hiring Marcus Freeman, to to preserve continuity within the team, to keep up what Brian Kelly had built and bring someone in who was already familiar with the system. I thought they were selling themselves short at the time because that option very rarely works. What you end up doing is limiting your pool of candidates, and by limiting your pool of candidates, you don't expose yourself to people who might have different ideas and a more proven track record. And and again, this is different because Marcus Freeman is a blackhead coach and blackhead coaches don't very often get those opportunities where they're promoted within the system. And when I say limiting your pool of candidates and potentially finding someone else with more experience, obviously there's coded language behind that, but this is like the reverse version because Marcus Freeman is a blackhead coach replacing a successful whitehead coach in Brian Kelly. But you limit your pool of candidates when you just promote the internal person to keep continuity. And Notre Dame tried to keep continuity together, and it did not work. And I remember Notre Dame playing Ohio State, them losing, and then the next week they lost to the Marshall, and the week after they almost lost to Cal. 
and they ended up finishing the season nine and three and playing in in I want to say like the the Russell Athletic Bowl or the Buffalo Wild Wings Citrus Bowl. And I remember them playing that game and I'm like, this was a relatively successful season given where they were at the start of the year and they have something to build on going into next season. And if Notre Dame plays in the Cotton Bowl or Notre Dame plays in the the New Year's the 6th of 6 New Year's 6 bowl games, I think this season's going to be regarded as a success even if they have to replace the quarterback position of Sam Hartman, the transfer from Wake Forest at the end of the season. The reason I bring all of this up is we are now 17, 18 games further into the Marcus Freeman coaching tenure than we were when we first evaluated Notre Dame against Ohio State and did a Notre Dame versus Ohio State postgame show in September of last year. And 17, 18 games later, I look at Notre Dame and say they have gotten back to the place that they were with Brian Kelly and are on the path to potentially sustainably being one of the the tier two or tier three college football teams. Notre Dame being ranked 11 in the country feels appropriate for Notre Dame. They'll be favorites on the road against Duke. They'll be underdogs at home against USC, but they have a decent chance of beating USC. And then they play Clemson late in the season, a game that they should probably expect to win, but might lose because Clemson is very difficult to beat at their home stadium, even if Clemson is a, is a tier three program themselves. And so Notre Dame being in that second and third tier also proves the point that Ohio State is in that second or third tier of teams. And what's unique about this year in college football is that two or three of those tier two teams are going to make it to the college football playoff because the only two really, really good teams in college football this year in terms of skill level on paper are Georgia and Michigan. That's it. Those are the only two that are really good. Georgia and Michigan. Everyone else is, t- is about the same. It's going to create for fun competition when, say, for example, USC plays against Notre Dame or when USC plays against Washington, another team that's in that second or third tier. Teams 3 through 12 in college football are all very similar to each other on paper, and the proof you need of that being true is that Ohio State is number 4, Notre Dame is number 11, and they were one fucking play away from each other. They were the same team. Both struggling on offense, both trying to run the ball to establish field positioning, neither team capitalizing on their opportunities, neither team having more noticeable talent than the other. Notre Dame and Ohio State were basically the same team. That wasn't the case 17 games ago when Marcus Freeman coached his first game at Notre Dame. For both sides of the coin, Ohio State had more noticeable talent, Notre Dame had less noticeable talent in their first game under a coach that had been promoted from the previous regime. All of it points to Notre Dame, Ohio State, both being on equal footing. And as it stands right now, Ohio State's ranked number four, Notre Dame's ranked number 11. And I think both teams have a chance of making the college football playoff still. If Notre Dame wins out, they get a win against USC, a win against Duke, a win on the road against Clemson, go 11-1, and their only losses to Ohio State. They might get into the playoff as the fourth team. And the reason it's so fun and unique is that outside of Georgia, who's going to get to the playoff without ever being tested, and outside of the winner of Michigan-Ohio State, assuming both teams are 11-0 or 10-1 going into the last game of the season, the winner between Ohio State and Michigan is going to get into the playoff, just as it has the last four years. 
And the winner of Georgia, or Georgia's going to get in the playoff, just period, point blank. They're not going to be tested to get there, just too much talent across the board. The three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten spots could go to anyone. And that that rarely does rarely happens in college football. Rarely do we say it can go to anyone. Anyone can get it between the three through twelve. Alabama's ranked twelve right now. Texas is ranked three. I mean, Texas isn't that much noticeably better than Alabama, right? Like, Texas has more talent across the board than Alabama, but it's not by a noticeable difference. We saw Texas play Alabama. Texas beat them and beat them handily, but it was not like a true 3 versus 12 game in college football. Alabama and Texas are not that far apart. They're 3 and 12. Ohio State and Notre Dame are 4 and 11. They are basically the same team. Washington and USC are 7 and 8. Both of those teams are basically the same as each other. 3 through 12 in college football are all in this tier 2 and 3. But because there's no discernible talent gap as there used to be in past years between 1 through 3 and everyone else, this year other than Georgia, there's not much of a talent gap between I mean Michigan is like a 4-star team or like a 4 and a, if Georgia's a 5, Michigan is 4-star Georgia. But there's a lot of four-star caliber teams right up and down this list. And what's going to be so fun is a lot of them play each other. That Notre Dame-Ohio State game was so much fun. And we're going to get three more games of equally talented teams that feel like either quarterfinal games of the college football playoff as we get later and later into the season are either going to feel like quarterfinal games or are going to feel like round of 16 games where you might lose but also not make the playoff, or you might win and not make the playoff, but at the very least, it feels pretty close to each other, and I'm really interested to see what happens when Washington plays USC, when USC plays against Notre Dame. Which of the Pac-12 teams is going to shit the bed down the stretch? What happens when Oregon plays Washington? Because Oregon beat the crap out of primetime Dion's Colorado team. Oregon's got a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback in Bo Nix. What's going to happen when Oregon plays Washington? What's going to happen when Washington plays USC? When USC plays Notre Dame? When Florida State... I think Florida State probably doesn't have any difficult games left this year. So maybe Florida State's going to walk their way into the playoff at this point because they've played most of their difficult games. Yeah, they play Virginia Tech, uh, Syracuse, Duke, uh, maybe Miami, maybe Florida. But for the most part, Florida State's knocked off most of their toughest challenge. Hell, Florida State was in overtime against Clemson. If it weren't for a strip sack, Florida State would have lost and they would have been probably out of the playoff picture altogether. But now Florida State all of a sudden is on the the path to college football playoff despite the fact that they have looked not convincing against Boston College, won that game by two points, and not convincing on the road against Clemson, went to overtime to have to win a game they probably should have lost. But hell, Florida State's now right in that same group of the the old Clemson, of like an ACC team that's going to run the table against a weaker conference, win their two or three difficult games, and get into the college football playoff. Now Florida State's in that group. Texas is in that group in the Big 12. They're not going to play any difficult, difficult opponents the rest of the season. I think Oklahoma's the toughest game they have left on the schedule. So what's going to happen with them going forward? All of it's going to be very fun and interesting, and all these teams are very, very close in stature to each other. And I'm curious to see what happens 
in another game like what we saw between Ohio State and Notre Dame, which was, as I repeated, awesome. It came down to the last drive of the game, the last play of the game. Ohio State called a run play at the one-yard line. It was all very, very fun. And I'm excited to watch these Tier 2 and 3 teams play each other a couple more times throughout the college football season. Ah, yes. It's that time of the week, everybody. Our Week 3 Philip Rivers Memorial Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award. And look, we don't even have to set this thing up. Let's just talk about Chargers and Vikings. Two teams that always find themselves down six, no timeouts, one minute to play, needing to go the length of the field. This entire game existed in Kirk Cousins Purgatory or Philip Rivers Memorial Kirk Cousins Purgatory. This entire game existed in that space. Kirk Cousins at halftime of this game was down four with no timeouts, had 30 seconds to play, and needed to go 60 yards to get the Vikings at least a field goal. Couldn't do it. They couldn't get any points prior to the half. Then at the end of the game, down four, one and a half minutes to play, no timeouts. Chargers have a fourth and one. This is the classic punt the ball back to Kirk Cousins situation. And you know what the Chargers decided to do? Fuck that. We're going to go for it on fourth down to deny Kirk Cousins purgatory. To deny Kirk Cousins his down four, no timeouts, one minute to play, needing to go the length of the field. We're going to go for it on our own 25-yard line. And this is how we're going to end the game. But in this game, that it was, this game was designed for... Philip Rivers Memorial, Kirk Cousins Purgatory. The Chargers used to be the team always down six, no timeouts, one minute to play, needing to go the length of the field. Kirk Cousins is now the quarterback who's always down six, no timeouts, one minute to play, needing to go the length of the field. Of course the Chargers weren't going to get that first down. This game had lived, lived in Kirk Cousins Purgatory, all the way down to the Chargers being down 24-21, throwing a deep ball pass that was intercepted by Byron Murphy off his shoulders into the arms of Joshua Palmer, leading to a Charger touchdown. Just the most bullshit game that was designed to lead to the inevitable conclusion. Down four, no timeouts, one minute to play, Vikings football in Chargers territory. And what did Kirk Cousins do? With 40 seconds to play, Converted a first down to get first and goal. Ran the clock down to 18 seconds. They didn't know they didn't run a no huddle. They didn't do anything. Spike the ball. Nothing. First and goal. Ran 28 seconds off the clock. Snapped it with 18 seconds. Threw an incompletion. Second and goal. 12 seconds to play. Pass intercepted in the end zone. Chargers win. 28-24. Again, it doesn't matter whether you win, lose, or draw. The perpetual existence of Kirk Cousins' purgatory is something that will reign infinite in the worlds of the Minnesota Vikings for the last five years, of Phillip Rivers' career for the ten years prior. This game was destined for everyone to feel gross about themselves coming out of the game, 
for everyone to hate themselves and hate that they root for the Chargers or the Vikings. This is the game to quit on on Kirk Cousins' purgatory. These two teams are Spider-Man memes of each other for the last 15, 25, 30 years. The gods who cursed the Chargers and the gods who cursed the Vikings came together to conspire on this one brutal Kirk Cousins purgatory game that led to the godforsaken result that you saw on the field during that game. It was gross, it was funny, and all of it led to just the most batshit crazy game living in Kirk Cousins purgatory. The whole game living in Kirk Cousins purgatory. It was going to be a one score game at the end. It was going to be the Vikings or the Chargers down four, no timeouts, one minute to play, needing to go the length of the field. Chargers could have punted back to the the Vikings. They said no. Vikings got the ball in Kirk Cousins purgatory and the game will live in infamy or fame in our case of our podcast for the rest of time. Thank you for delivering that Beautiful, beautiful performance, Kirk Cousins and Justin Herbert. For the third time in three weeks, Kirk Cousins in Kirk Cousins Purgatory. He has now gone four consecutive weeks living in Kirk Cousins Purgatory. He has gone six of the last eight weeks in Kirk Cousins Purgatory. Always down four, no timeouts, one minute to play, needing to go the length of the field. He did it in the playoff game against the Giants. He did it to come back from 33 down against the Colts. He did it week one when the Vikings lost to Tampa Bay. Down three, no timeouts, one minute to play, needing to go the length of the field, turned the ball over on downs. Did it against the Eagles. Down six, no timeouts, 40 seconds to play, needing to go 85 yards. Didn't move the ball at all. Lose the game by six. And this week, down four, no timeouts, one minute to play, needing to go 30 yards to win the game. Nothing, nothing goes for the Vikings. They're 0-3 after being 11-0 in one-score games last year. Law of averages is infinite. One-score games are a coin toss. And the Vikings are going to continue to live in Kirk Cousins' purgatory for as long as Kirk Cousins shall remain quarterback of the Vikings. So there's your Kirk Cousins' purgatory game, and there's your podcast, ladies and gentlemen. The only other note I have for this week is, man, wasn't that an interesting game between the Texans and Jaguars? Texans beat that ass beat that ass of a Jaguars team that we know isn't actually that good. They whooped up on the Jacksonville Jaguars. Both teams are now 1-2. and two. Jacksonville's offense looks a little bit whack right now. Beat that ass. Beat that ass the Houston Texans did. Cardinals got a first win of the season. Congrats to those two teams. They are seeing both of their draft picks go to the Cardinals anyways, but both of them got week one wins that no one thought they would. Good on them for whooping up whooping up on the whooping up on the char, uh, on the Jaguars in week 1 very interesting to watch Brevin Jordan had a touchdown Tank Dell had a huge day how about the Texans offense finally showing signs of life for the first time in checks notes four and a half years four and a half years was the last time the Texans offense showed any signs of life so good on them for getting that one done your four 
You're in year four of a five-year rebuild, and at the very least, you have finally seen signs of life by winning a game handily for the first time since the 2019 regular season. Good on you, Texans. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We got episodes Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday here on the show. You can check out some of our fun episodes from last week. We have wired up occasionally on Sundays, and... uh, that Wired Up episode on Sunday, I think there's some good points you can take away from the uh, the Minnesota Vikings and talking about the uh, 0-2, now 0-3 Vikings, a conversation about uh, Joe Burrow and the Bengals. You can check that out as well. We'll have talk about Justin Herbert later this week, the 49ers, all sorts of fun stuff coming up on the show. Glad we get to share it with you guys, so stay tuned for more content all throughout this week. We will talk to you again on a Wednesday. And in the meantime, like the Miami Dolphins, take it easy. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.